how to beat Amazon. It's a question on the minds of not only retailers, but a whole lot of tech companies. And I've got just a group of people to get us closer to answering that question on this edition of Fort Knox. I am John Fort. This is Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm at the New York Stock Exchange. We're gonna to talk to an upstart, an insider, and a founder. The upstart is Dan Rosenzweig. He is the CEO of Chegg. Uh, Nadia Shorabora is gonna join us a little bit later. She's the CEO of Pointer and a former executive at Amazon who reported to Jeff Bezos. And then Anthony Bucci is founder of Revzilla, which is a motorcycle parts and equipment company that's managed to carve out a niche that hasn't been Amazonable quite yet. We are going to dig into all of that. Also this week on the podcast, John Chen, CEO of BlackBerry and Enterprise Turnaround Audience sits down with me for the one-on-one. -on -one. But first, Dan Rosenzweig, how you doing? I'm good, John, how you been? I've been doing well, and I've been wanting to do this particular topic for a while, because while the conventional wisdom is that Amazon is just beating everybody, they're unstoppable, there are a few companies that have managed to carve out niches and absolutely grow. Chegg is one of them. I wrote down a few more. Etsy, I mean, Amazon did Amazon handmade. They have not bowled over Etsy at this point. Shopify is a big competitor, even in the e-commerce space that has managed to arm a number of companies against Amazon. Best Buy was supposed to be dead. They're not. But you're the CEO of Chegg, uh, which is a remarkable company. Started off in textbook rentals, has expanded into all kinds of student services, including study aids and more. What would you say is the main thing that's kept you from getting Amazon? Because, I mean, hey, books, that's Amazon's bread and butter. You would think they would have blocked all entrance into every category in books. Yeah, and they, and they tried. Um, you know, in typical Amazon fashion, right after we went public, they announced they were going into the textbook rental business and copying us. And uh, investors didn't like that, and we took a beating in the public markets. But we always knew that we had our own vision, our own mission, and that we were going to digitize the company. And look, the way to beat anybody is to become who you need to be. We said we're going to put the students first. We're not going to worry about what Amazon does or what anybody else does. Let's focus on our audience. Let's focus on their needs. Let's be more nimble. Let's be more efficient. Let's make sure that we have assets that are unique to us that are beneficial to the student. Let's build a business model that recognizes that if you're in a commodity business uh, and you're going to lose to Amazon. So we focused all of our attention on putting the student first, building a series of services, using big data, and then really leveraging, John, the kinds of companies that you love, like Adobe, which is, we said, if we own the customer, if we own the data, if we own the channel, which is the internet, and we own proprietary content, we ought to be able to create overwhelming value for the student, regardless of what Amazon tries to do. Well, and Dad, that's I what we focused on doing. I want to get into some of that because uh, at the time, right after Chegg had its IPO, your business yeah. was mostly textbook rental. Uh, 80%. After that, yeah, I mean, after that, you diversified a lot. You've bought some other companies. You've done a lot in services, student services outside of just textbook, textbook rentals. Now, a lot of people say, right. if you want to go against Amazon or any kind of big, powerful incumbent, don't necessarily try to underprice them don't necessarily uh, try to offer more variety than they do on kind of an object basis, but you got to get super close to the customer and what their need is and hope you can somehow super serve them. Is that part of your playbook? 
Yeah, I think that's the exact playbook, which is what, look, what does Amazon have? They have unlimited resources. They have an investor base that will let them lose as much money as they want. They can always beat you on shipping. They can beat you on pricing. They can beat you on variety. So in a commodity business, if that, which we're not, but we were when we were textbook rental, you can't play their game. If you play somebody else's game, they're going to beat you. So you need to change the playing field. We changed the playing field. We said, let's focus on the student needs. They don't just need textbook rental. They need to know how to get into college. They need to understand their homework. They need to pass their classes. They need to get internships. They need to get jobs. Amazon can't do any of that and have, they have no advantages in any of those businesses. So why play someone else's game where they're likely to win Play the game that you know how to play, execute better, be more nimble, be more efficient, be more scrappy, and then you can take on and beat Amazon. And we're not the only ones to do it. I'm on the board of Rent the Runway. They've done an extraordinary job of building a, a, a rental business and then a subscription business. It's all about what you said, John, getting close to the customer, using the data to be able to program more efficiently, more effectively, and more relevant, mm -hmm. do it for less, and then keep providing overwhelming value. Same thing so holds true, out, by the way. I'm sorry, John, go ahead. I, I want to dig out lessons here that not just other companies, but also entrepreneurs can sure. use in trying to figure out how to come to market uh, in this kind of environment that's dominated by some big players. So I'm wondering, what are some of the, I guess, resources, factors that you need in place if you're going to pursue this strategy? Well, do you have to have extra capital, extra money and savings built up? Do you have to be particularly patient is there a particular type of employee or advisor that you need to have in place who's going to be able to help you to maneuver better versus that size of an adversary who's that well-resourced? Yeah, it's a great question. And so you need a long-term vision. You need to get people to buy into that vision. It starts with your board and it starts with the investors because there is there's a 90% chance that Amazon is going to go after you if you have an interesting market that they think can be big or they think that they can benefit from. So if you know that going into it, you got to ask yourself, I need capital, I need long-term capital, I need a board that's going to help me withstand the initial hit because that's what they're going to do. You need to be able to articulate your story, have it with confidence, Bring your employees into that conversation. Let them know that you expect it to happen and then let them know you have a plan to deal with it. And once they buy in, you don't worry about it anymore. You just keep executing, executing, executing. You don't get scared. You don't lose, you don't lose uh, touch with your customer. So if you know it's going to come, you can prepare for it and then you don't worry about it. You just execute. But they absolutely are going to come at you. And the good companies are saying, look, I know they are. I can withstand it. And then once I withstand it, I'm going to be better with my customer than they can. Because the one thing they can never do is, is get nimble, get more efficient, really get deep with that customer. They do everything just by brute force. And you can beat <laughs> companies with brute force, right? That, and and yeah. we, we all know that. And we've been successful, as have others. Uh, yeah, it reminds me of the old days playing Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Um, I, I, wonder, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder, you were a, a top executive at Yahoo years ago before you became the CEO at, at Chegg. And Yahoo was going through a period. It had been one of the biggest companies in Silicon Valley, a pioneer in the online you know, web browser-led age. Um, and, and then Google came along, and a lot of people were comparing Yahoo to Google. Mm -hmm. Is the playbook Yahoo should have followed similar to what so many companies find themselves up against in this 
kind of Amazon, Facebook, uh, Alphabet, Apple, Netflix era? Or, you know, what are the similarities in differences that you see competing as Chegg versus what you did competing as Yahoo? Well, that was, you know, almost 11 years ago. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, but I do have a recollection. It, look, the lessons are always the same, which is you have to be very clear on your vision, very clear on your mission. You have to be able to stick to the core of it, but be nimble. You have to recognize that in the world of technology, sometimes you're the windshield, sometimes you're the bug. And you have to be prepared for the days when you're the bug. So at Chegg, we knew that we weren't going to be in textbook rentals, so we had already been prepared to go digital. Amazon entering made us do it faster, but we were prepared to do it. I knew from the Yahoo experience there's always going to be a competitor or a rainy day. So Chegg went out and raised a lot of capital. We have nearly half a billion dollars in capital now. And so there are lessons, and, and most of them are around don't lose the long-term vision. Focus on the customer, create overwhelming value, use the technology that's available. Back in the Yahoo days, Google was going to beat us in search. That was inevitable. But we didn't have to lose in other things like homepage or mail or other things. And you can get easily distracted or you know, play for the fear of the moment. What we've all come away with is stay focused, stay nimble, stay focused on your customer. You want to have a direct relationship with your customer. You want to be able to use that data. You want to be able to use the internet to deliver your content more efficiently. And you want to own proprietary content. Yahoo didn't own proprietary content. We own the aggregation of content. So at some point, if we didn't own content, we were going to become commoditized, and that's what happened. Well, now uh, let's get an inside look and get a startup's look. Uh, once again, this is Fort Knox. We are talking about how to beat Amazon. Not an easy thing to do. Amazon does pretty well. We, we could have just as easily called it how to survive Amazon. But hey, if, if you can survive, then you can win. Right now, I want to bring in Nadia Shurabura, the CEO of Hointer. She was one of the direct reports to Jeff Bezos uh, before she left Amazon about, I think it was six or so years ago. Nadia, you can correct me there. And then Anthony Bucci is founder of RevZilla, which uh, specializes in motorcycle gear. And um, I guess it helps that it's heavy. It's harder to ship some motorcycle gear, but hey, it's an area that Amazon was going to move into eventually, so uh, you clearly had to prepare and think about what you were going to do. Uh, welcome to both of you. Nadia, I want to start with you. So it's been a while since you were working at Amazon, but you saw the growth of this giant uh, out of just books and electronics into so many other areas. Does it ring true that Amazon can't really focus on everything, can't get deep? customer relationships in every segment. And so if you want to compete, you got to compete on customer experience. You know, um, many people think of Amazon as this big uh, company, uh, big gorilla and big company with uh, infinite amount of resources and brute force and things like that. Um, and uh, I actually disagree with that. I've been with a company for many, many years. And uh, it's actually a very human company. and. Uh, uh, in mm -hmm. some respect, a very kind company, and the company who deeply is deeply obsessed with customer it, experience yes. and is deeply obsessed with uh, new services and reinventing the world to make it a better place. And so um, it is capable of focusing on many different subjects because uh, the whole organization is divided into many small teams, and every small team is just like a startup. 
and mm. as a part of startup, you're obsessed with your area, you're obsessed with customers. But within the walls of Amazon, we don't think of ourselves as big or powerful or with lim uh, limited resources. It's a human and it's a kind company. Okay, so how do you beat it? You, you're clearly uh, still uh, affected by the culture. You're still referring to Amazon as we. Um, if, it's, if you can't beat it necessarily by focusing, if it's uh, operating as a startup at many levels, how do you think some of these companies have managed to do it? Chegg has carved out a niche for itself. And John, certainly John has. If, I, if, I, if I could just say, look, I don't know if Amazon's a kind company or not a kind company, <laughs> but every time that a competitor comes out, Amazon suddenly lowers its prices. It's like when Google said, we'll do no evil, and they suddenly changed search algorithms, which is people can believe what they want to believe, but when you compete with these companies, they, are, they do do it by brute force. They may act like startups inside the company, but when they went in the textbook rental business, they lost hundreds of millions of dollars to do it, um, to take us on, and actually had to say on their conference call that they missed their numbers that quarter because they were... They, they were off on the textbook number, which I never thought Amazon would ever even say on a conference call. So they may be a wonderfully kind company at the executive management level, but they go to play, they play to win, and when you're gonna play against Amazon, you have to play to win, and you can. You know, so Nadia, I, I agree you, with... How, how do you do it? Yeah, so, yeah, you, you, so advise, I, you advise brick and mortar companies uh, on this very topic. What do you tell them? So what I tell them is that we need to create an experience for customer which makes Amazon um, less exciting for customers. And it's all about creating this new experience, innovating experience, um, experience which supersedes Amazon's experience. And to me, that's the only way to compete with Amazon for customer attention. Anthony, weigh in here because when RevZilla was getting started, you guys uh, looked at strong communities online and, uh, and how they, I guess, managed to, to cater to their uh, consumer base before figuring out exactly how you were gonna carve out your niche, am I right? Absolutely, so I would look through the lens of being defensible against Amazon um, in a few different ways, but I'm gonna bridge all the way back to the value creation piece. I think that people, think they want innovative experiences, but really what drives them is going to be pain or need. And when you think about those communities and you think about when we dipped into the market as a startup out of our apartment for Revzilla in 2007, we had a great feedback loop with our customers. We talked to lots of customers every day and we understood their pain. And when you can do that, you can do things that Amazon might not be willing to do. Amazon's going to well, throw a budget at it. They're going to compete on speed, price, and selection. Go ahead. Uh, how, how did you manage to talk to so many customers every day? I mean, did, did you have brick-and-mortar motorcycle shops? Um, had you assembled a community already? I mean, that, that's a problem that a lot of entrepreneurs have right off the bat. I mean, they, they, they have an idea, maybe they have some insight into an area, but they don't necessarily have access to hundreds of potential customers. So it's a great question. I love that question. When we started, there were three of us, and we had no employees, and we never raised capital. We were bootstrapped the whole ride. So. Ultimately, our customers were calling us. And when we are, we are in a considered purchase category, so it's specialty retail. It's a $400 helmet or a $1,000 leather jacket. It's hard to buy. It's emotional. There's a lot of information someone needs to make that purchase. So in answering questions that would help someone find a solution to allow themselves to enjoy the riding, we ultimately began to compile, here are the things we hear all the time. These are real issues in the market for the consumer. Why isn't another online player, Amazon, some of our competitors at the time in our space, the brick and mortar dealerships, why aren't they answering these questions for the consumer? 
So we focused on that customer pain, and even when we were small, we took all the phone calls and all of the emails. You know, within a few years, we had scaled the business and we're on a rapid growth curve, but one of the big things that we did was we made sure we had feedback loops that still allowed us to hear those questions and those insights that were coming from the consumer understanding what, what they needed. We scaled customer service around it, we scaled community around it, we scaled content around it. We did video on YouTube that allowed us to really um, inform our customers in a scalable way without having to take every phone call. So we, in a sense, educated the market and really competed as a media entity through that type of authority as well and then monetized as a retailer. So that was our big hook, which was we became an indispensable resource. Dan Rosenzweig, any of that sound familiar in how you have scaled Chegg into, I mean, it's, it's really very much a name brand, particularly among college students. I visit uh, my alma mater college campus pretty regularly, and uh, it's become a, a strong brand among students. How do you do that? We have 84% Yeah, we have 84% brand recognition on college's campus now, and we have more than one out of every two kid, a college kid registered with us. Um, you know, our business has been growing, our subscription business has been growing at over 44% uh, yeah. each quarter, and we're profitable. So uh, what we've done, but it's taken eight and a half years to do that. And so I want to go back. So everything I heard does resonate with me. Look, Amazon is an amazing company. What I would say is my old roots of being in special interest magazine publishing or at Yahoo or even at Guitar Hero when I was CEO of Guitar Hero, the same things hold true. If you stay focused on your customer, if you, it's easier now, believe it or not, John, to compete because you have a direct relationship with your customer as your consumer. There's nobody in between you. So you know what they want, what they don't want. The second is you own the channel directly to them, which means it's, it's faster, it's more efficient than it's ever been. And if you own your own content, your own experience, you can actually improve it immediately. You don't have to go to somebody else to make it better for you. And that allows you to create overwhelming value. So, you know, customers love Amazon because of its, if its price and its efficiency, and you can get something in an hour if you live in a big city, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to have a better relationship, a deeper relationship, you want to be engaged with what you're doing, then Amazon is never going to be the place for you. It's going to be companies that know their customers better. And because you have the data now, we can focus every day on what customers like and what they don't like, and we can change it in an hour. By the way, when we were competing with Amazon in the textbook rental business, why are we doing over six million textbooks a year, even though they entered the market? It's because we built algorithms that could tune faster to the students' pricing needs than, than um, Amazon could. So everything I've heard does resonate with me. I would say don't be afraid, but be yourself. Be authentic. Have your brand be authentic. Relate to your customers. Don't let them down and use the technology to create overwhelming value. And you could be a company like the ones you're talking to today. Well, this is Fort Knox. We are talking about how to beat Amazon with me uh, for this show. Dan Rosenzweig is the CEO of Chegg, which specializes in serving students, started with tech book rentals and has gone way beyond that. Nadia Shorabora is CEO of Pointer, which helps brick and mortar retailers adapt to the digital age. She was uh, one of the direct reports to Jeff Bezos years ago when she worked at Amazon. And Anthony Bucci is founder of Revzilla, which specializes in motorcycle uh, parts and merchandise and has carved out a niche. Nadia, I want to go back to you. Talk case studies a little bit. Best Buy uh, is a, at least primarily brick and mortar retailer. It's adapted to the digital age. A lot of people thought they were dead as Barnes and Noble, <laughs> but they've had a bit of a renaissance 
And from, from your perspective, working with brick and mortar retailers every day, what did uh, Best Buy get right? And um, I mean, I know nobody's ever out of the woods, but are they out of the woods yet when it comes to Amazon competition? Or are there some things that you think a retailer like that still has to tighten up? You know, I think um, I'm excited about Best Buy, and they actually taught Amazon a lot because um, many, if you looked uh, seven, eight years ago, Amazon didn't think about physical contact with a customer, physical stores. And uh, uh, we were very focused on online fulfillment, but the whole idea of opening a store and talking to customer directly uh, was really weird. And uh, uh, what Best Buy did is uh, they uh, stuck to what they know best, which is the store and the experience. And a customer does need to come to the store and play with electronics, touch a toy, try on apparel, and have this experience with the product. And uh, uh, what Best Buy did is they doubled down on that physical in-store experience, and mm -hmm. they kept their customers. And, uh, you know, now I'm not surprised that Amazon is looking at stores and is opening stores and also thinking how to reinvent even further that experience in a store. The most recent Amazon Go and uh, Amazon Connected Home or Amazon Bookstore and Amazon Apparel Store. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, and of course Whole Foods, so I wouldn't be surprised if Amazon will continue yeah. entering the bricks and mortar area and facing the customer directly. Yeah, that's a lot of stores. Every once in a while, um, a viewer will send in a comment that is right along the lines of what we're talking about. Uh, Cheryl Erhardt says people need to understand here. Um, there are many small people behind Amazon. My mom used to sell on Amazon and sell 2000 a month in retirement. So it's a company that allows people to also be a part of sales. Anthony, um, talk about why you decided, why Revzilla decided uh, to strike it out on its own rather than work through a company like Amazon as a third party retailer or reseller. Uh, there are, are others like Shopify, which I would count as another upstart that's uh, successfully challenging Amazon, Etsy, another, that, that have sort of set up some of that capability. Um, but but what, what sort of choices are you making when you're deciding to build your own brand rather than do it on somebody else's platform? Yeah, that's a great question. So that's actually a pretty loaded question too. So I ran the business for almost nine years and it came up nearly every six months because we knew there'd be incremental sales benefit if we were to release our product catalog to Amazon's third-party marketplace and allow Amazon to represent our products online. Now granted, we were a third-party uh, retailer, right? We sold a lot of other people's products. But as a leader in our space and trying to train our consumers, start with us, start with our ecosystem, start with our community, start with our content. What we didn't want to do was train them that instead of coming to us to allow ourselves to be disintermediated where our consumer now goes to Amazon. I probably shop on Amazon every day. Prime is the greatest thing ever. But when I need something specific, I want to work with someone that can help me via website or the phone or chat. And I want, to, I want to be able to build a relationship where someone, where a business can be my Sherpa. And we said, can we be the Sherpa for the consumer? And if so, we need to send a message to the motorcycle aftermarket as well as our competitors. To do that, you don't lease your eyeballs away. You don't train your customer to go to another channel. You own a yeah. direct relationship with your consumer and then you figure out what they need and how to create value, as we've heard multiple times today, for them on a continual basis. And that was you know, a big tool for us in keeping, keeping people on our site, but also building the authority and brand equity over time. 
But Anthony, it's, it's risky. Uh, just a personal story, I, I, I shop on Amazon a lot too, but uh, just yesterday, I was looking for a gift uh, for someone. It's uh, a flute case. And I went to musiciansfriend.com because it's, I shopped on that for, for guitar gear more than a decade ago. I went on, was looking for flute cases, didn't see what I was looking for, even used their little pop-up chat on the site. They couldn't really help me. So I had to go to Amazon because the selection was better. Um, what sort of customer service do you have to be prepared to deliver if you're in that position and you do decide to strike it out and, and stay on your own? So every business needs to decide where they're going to invest and what those strategic pillars are going to look like. At RevZilla, we looked at it and said, we're going to be industry leading from service and knowledge. And thankfully, we competed as a media company as well as a technology company and built a lot of our own tools. So we were prepared to, you know, uh, an anecdote that I tell a lot is in the early days, we'd get a phone call, typically from a male rider, maybe in his 40s, and would say, hey, listen, I live in Seattle, I ride 200 days a year, I get rained on all the time, I have $500 to spend on a jacket, and I run really hot, I need lots of venting. That's an hour-long phone conversation. At the end, we've helped that rider find what they were looking for, but they say, I'm gonna buy from you, and I'm gonna tell people, everyone I ride with, that you exist, and I hope you never change. And we learned really early on, we need to scale parts of that conversation, and we need to be ready to have that in-depth, deep dive if we need to, but that's how you sell amazing lemonade that hooks people for life and they keep coming back to you. And that's ultimately over the longer term, when you align the interests of the business, or the mission of the business with the interests of the consumer, how you can keep them loyal, and keep them so, returning, and keep them engaged. And so that was John, really the secret sauce for us. We scaled yeah, it I, tremendously. I, th I think that's an excellent point, which is, um, you know, we decided that our mission from day one was we were going to put the student first. And that meant we were going to build an entire an ecosystem around making sure that the student never felt alone, that we were available 24-7, because this is when they're studying. This is when they need answers. This is when they need help. This is when they're most stressed. And so I was just up in Portland yesterday with 50 of our customer service people and sat in with some of them on the phone. And the way they handle our customers is they understand them, they respect them, they know these are young people, they know that money matters, they know that they're going to be stressed, they know this is a call they don't want to make when something's happening <laughs> or they can't get access or they, or they got billed and they didn't want to get billed or they don't know where their book is. And so we're able to tune every piece of our software, every piece of our, our tools and technology, the hours that were available, the, the sources that you can reach us, whether it's on Twitter or it's on Facebook or it's directly through us or on email, Everything that we do is tuned because we respect and understand the needs of that particular customer, and so they love us. And that's why we have 84% brand recognition. It's why over half our customers come in through referral. It's why our traffic is almost all organic at this point. We haven't even, we, we have not only not raised our annual marketing budget in the last three years, it's not only down as a percentage of our revenue, but it's down overall. And the reason is because of some of the things you just heard. When you build that relationship of trust and respect, and it's not just price and speed. There are things that price and speed matters. But when you're building something, a relationship with a customer, it's, it's much deeper than that, and the customers will reward you. Want to get a quick final word from each of you. Nadia, you first, uh, for, for an earlier stage retailer who's looking to, to go the distance in this environment against the Amazons and everybody else, what is the main area that you would advise that they look on investing a bit more in, whether it is um, product? Of course, you've got to have an excellent product, but, but do you need to go above and beyond there, expecting that that'll lift you? Customer service, uh, market research, what? 
You know, um, I think when, uh, I think as a mer merchants or retailers, you actually don't have to focus on beating Amazon or competing Amazon, because Amazon is a good partner too. Uh, in fact, uh, the vast majority right, of but, products sold but on what Amazon. Area of, what area should you focus on? Even, and I'm not saying focus on Amazon, I'm saying within your own business, uh, if you want to go the, go the distance, which of those areas, what areas should you focus on investing more in? You know, I think product is, of course, the most important for, in retail. Uh, product, the emotional connection with a customer, and many other things. But uh, focusing on all that, uh, I usually recommend uh, folks I work with uh, not to work against Amazon, but work with Amazon and use Amazon as yet another very good channel to make money and to connect with more customers and use them as a great fulfillment platform. There is no reason, there is no tyranny of ore there. And uh, there are many great brands on Amazon who sell through Amazon. And I'm glad mm -hmm. that Cheryl made that comment earlier that uh, her mother um, build a good business working with Amazon. So I think, right. don't think of it as a tyranny of ore. Uh, consider Amazon as a partner, but also consider the important things like your product and yeah. uh, the connection with the customer. Though that wouldn't have worked for uh, Revzilla or Chegg, uh, I, I dare say. Anthony, what's well, the well, Not, not would only advise? would it have not worked for us, John, Amazon won't let us work with them as a partner. <laughs> Just so we're clear. Right, right. I, I, they, they, they will okay, not so let you, us market through You go next, Dan, and, and, and we'll <laughs> let uh, Anthony have the last word. Dan, what, what is the area that you would advise businesses that are in the younger stage to focus on in this environment? Stay as close to your customer as humanly possible. They mm -hmm. will tell you through their actions what they like and what they don't like, where they find value and where they don't find value. The beauty of the internet right now, the beauty of owning the customer and owning the data and owning the channel, which we own all of them, and we own proprietary content, is we don't have to guess, they'll tell us. And if yeah. you listen, then you can focus on whatever it is, whether it's building a, a physical product or building a digital product. The customer is in charge in this era, and if you, if you leverage that relationship, you can sustain anything that these companies do to you. But you also so need to always think long-term. Right, invest in that customer, that direct customer relationship, Anthony, uh, last word on this to you, where would you advise a young business to invest? Last word's a layup. It's proprietary <laughs> insights. If you have $1 to spend, you, you invest it understanding your customer because you learn their secrets in the best sense of it, and then you do the things that your competitors won't do to address those secrets and create value. And a lot of times, it's pulling roadblocks, creating value through eliminating pain. It's what Amazon won't do. They won't go the last 10% for the customer. If you can do that, your customers will love you. All right. Well, on this subject, we will leave it there. Dan, Nadia, and, uh, Anthony, if, if I may so jump much. in, I respectfully no, disagree there, with the last comment. I understand comment. that you disagree. Still love Amazon, but we, we, got, we got to be done uh, with this topic for now. Lots of great insight. Uh, people will certainly go back uh, and, and get into this. Coming up on the podcast, John Chen, CEO of BlackBerry. <laughs> now, you've been at BlackBerry for... Uh, about five years now. About five, yeah. And uh, a lot of people didn't think that you were in for the long haul, but you've just signed through 2023. That'd be 10 years. You were at Sybase for like 12 years, yes, right? So this is, this is a long tenure. What made you see long-term in BlackBerry? Well, I'm one of those emotional guy. You know, I, I think this now becomes part of me. And so I, I would 
prefer to answer that question first that way. Um, and you know, there's a lot about the business that is interesting. It could go to many different directions. We got a lot of assets to play with. Um, and I'm sure we're going to make some mistakes along the way. But on the other hand, I think the, where the world is going, um, you know, where we have in technology, I think it matches up pretty well. So the strategy is pretty good. And we got the company do well now and stable, make money and have cash and all that. We're going to start investing that. That's always an exciting phase. Right. right? So, so I, and again, you know, it's emotionally I'm vested. Uh, so I want to see this well. So anyway, so that, that's the reason. Why. What is it about turnarounds? Because when you, when you went to Sybase, Oracle was beating up Sybase because they hadn't made that shift into applications. You know, Sybase had to make some changes and you got that turned around. Now, uh, BlackBerry, you say that turnaround is complete. BlackBerry's making money again, not focused on phones anymore, focused on security and the internet of things. I mean, you're a sucker for punishment. What is it that you find yes. these things <laughs> that need fixing and get them working again? A couple of things. Um, first of all, at Sybase, we're a little different because um, I, was, I really want to get into a, a software company. And, and so, I, I, I'm a technology nut. I, I love technologies, and, and it's one of those things that business, you know, misstep doesn't imply you don't have good technology. Mm. And, and so that's one thing I say. You know, you have good technology, you have a way to come back. I mean, engineer a little differently. So that's the reason why. Um, nothing really. I wasn't really looking for troubles, uh, so to speak. Uh, but troubles find me, you know. But. <laughs> They, they tried, they, they, you know, a lot of people wanted to, me to, because, because the long-termness has something to do with it. I mean, people know that I'm not just kind of flipping things and all that. I'm here to fix the foundation, the fundamentals, and build on it. Uh, and I, I can't say that I'll be successful every single time. Where'd you get that from, um, that mindset? I don't know. I have one of those things that I always felt, when even when people were saying, oh, this company is, is dying or not doing well or something, you know, I, I, I always think that this is kind of over-exaggeration. Mm. Uh, it's one of those things, it, you know, never, I'm kind of having one of those never-say-die attitudes. I guess that's probably why. Um, Growing up in Hong Kong, what was the environment like? What were your influences? What were you seeing either in terms of businesses or ideas and ventures that inspired you? Does it go back to that at Oh, yeah, at that's all? a lot of inspiration. I mean, that's really, uh, you know, I mean, starting from my my family, my father, and all that, but but more so that I want to make it broader so that I don't get overly emotional about things. It's okay. You know, my 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 um, my parents were refugee escaping communists at the time. Yeah. So you know they you know my father have a Chinese degree. It's a I'll go into a British colony. You know nobody recognizes an accountant, and so you have to do odd jobs and being being bookkeeper and get, instead of accountant. So life was difficult. But then life was difficult for everybody growing up in right. Hong Kong at the time because this is you know other than if you're British, you're you're not you know you're, you're, unless you're an expatriate or something, you you you're struggling you know to make ends meet. And so seeing that and seeing all these big big ideas and big corporation. That started from a seat, you know. Um, I, I got many of those stories. Was it about taking the long view? Because that is a, a foundational element to so many immigrant family stories, is the parents know that they have to take a step backward professionally in order to set the foundation for their kids to have a better chance. And so they take the long view and say, this is gonna be better 
for our family, for my children, even though it's tough right now. Exactly. I think the long view and the persistency. You, 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 learn not, you learn not to get overly hung up on the setback. Because still, multiple times you have you know, a couple of steps forward, a couple of steps back. And, and you just have to deal with it. Mental toughness is all I want you know, to say. It's like me playing golf. You know, when I hit a bad shot, I thought about a next shot. I actually don't think about a bad shot I hit. And I see a lot of people start throwing cups and <laughs> hitting the ground and the turf and stuff. But that's an attitudinal thing. You know, you don't, we never really expect that success will just hand it to you. A, you have to earn it, and B, if it doesn't happen, just try again, you know. And this, you know, the, the key is about the journey. It's not about exactly everything you want, you need. What was the hardest time period in your career? I, I think way back when, when I wasn't given the opportunities. Mm. Uh, and that How was far tough. back was that? Oh, that was when I, when I was engineer uh, in the, uh, I started as an engineer in 1979, mm -hmm. so like early 80s, um, you, know, I, you know, I learned the ropes and do a lot of work and did, did a lot of good things, and but really never got the the opportunity. I got the recognition, you know, money and all that stuff. So that's not the issue. The issue has been always been, you know, the opportunity to do something more, to do something to different. Lead. Yeah, to it's, be in charge. Because, because, well, because we were stereotyped. I didn't even want yeah. to lead. I just want to do something else uh -huh. I, and to learn more. Um, I, I remember I was an engineer. If I if I didn't really try to fight through that, I'll probably be an engineer. <laughs> I'd probably be a chief scientist somewhere right now, you know, or something like that. But but I wanted I wanted to do something different. I wanted to learn how to interact with outside and marketing and what does that mean and it was, it, it, uh, all that thing. And it, it was difficult for me to. So there were a period of time I felt very slight, you know, slightly unhappy. How'd you get through it? Well, I keep asking, and they tell me why it's not a good idea. Then. I, I went and learned, you know, one of the things about, you, you, back then, by the way, you know, they, they, were, they were right on certain things. You and I wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation because I was, you know, very nervous about having conversation, making speeches, and making presentations, um, and, and felt inadequate. Uh -huh. and maybe, you know, and so I have to overcome that, you know, public speaking and all that. Now I just, you know, BS my way through. <laughs> Just like everybody else. That's, that's, how, that's, that's how like everybody done. else. That's yeah, how exactly. it's done. Right. But was it, was it uh, a particular opportunity that you got? Um, was it having to maybe take, leave a place or take a, a, a demotion in order to get the opportunity you wanted? How did it, how did it come together that you yeah, got to Yeah, actually prove? a couple of times I did. I, um, I'll, I'll give you the Sybase story. You know, I got to Sybase. Actually, I was making more money running a much bigger business with Siemens before I took the side page job. But I really wanted to do software. I was in hardware, I was building systems, I was building mainframe, which is nothing wrong with that. But I see that that's not where the world's going. The world's going software. And this is 1990s, 90s. Yeah. So I decided like to 98 take, you went to side page, right? 97, yeah. 97. So, so I decided to, you know, to, to literally take a step back both on compensation and title mm. and became the president um, of Sybase. In 1997, uh, it turns out to be the right choice. Right, I mean, in my mind, it turns out to be the right choice. It, it looks that way because it was a bit of a fixer-upper. So Siemens at the time, perhaps more prestigious, you were making more money, but you went there and were able to prove your breadth. Yeah, it gave me the opportunity. I, I learned a lot, which is wonderful. And the same thing, I came here at BlackBerry. I learned a lot. 
Uh, I contribute a lot, I learn a lot. And, and I think that's the way it ought to be. And uh, we're trying new things and that's where the funds come from. I want to talk about the future of work. When okay. you look at the type of workforce that BlackBerry is going to need over the next five years, what kinds of people are you looking for? It's different from what you might have been looking for five years ago. And maybe what kind of tools are you using to communicate with that workforce, to motivate it that are different than, than what you would have used in the past? Uh, that's, that's a really great question. Um, I, um, I think we need to start injecting an element of growth. Um, you know, we came from a background we want to stabilize, we did. We want to set a direction, we did. Now, each and every one of us, including myself, I think we need to start focusing on a growth mindset, which is different. Right. right. And I hope that we could balance the two, meaning that you don't grow into trouble, or, or, or you, 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 you stay grounded, but you really have to be started growing. So I think talents in growth and growth-oriented people, um, you know, really kind of high-growth entrepreneur, uh, that spirit, that knowledge, that, that, that experience, it'll be useful for so us. So you might have to do some acquisitions. I got to, that's acquisition and, and recruiting. Yeah, different kind of recruiting. Yeah, different kind of recruiting. People maybe who are uh, looking for a different kind of risk, yes. not the risk that the company's gonna go under. Exactly. But, but the, the risk, uh, taking on a, the sort of risk that could lead to higher growth, where exactly. they wanna try yeah. different things. And we also, like people like myself, also need to be a little bit more open to let them try it. Because, you know, high risk stuff have high rewards, but high risk, right? By definition, it, will, it might, might not happen. So in the past five years, having to ground this, I, I tend not to take that many risks. A more calculated, more traditional approach to things. So I, you know, make sure you, pick more, you, you take in more money than you spend, it's a good formula. <laughs> right. uh, but now we might have to orientate it a little bit differently. You're on the boards of Wells Fargo and Disney. I'm not gonna ask you for board secrets here. I'm gonna ask, two very different companies, by the way. I'm no longer on Wells, but. Oh, no longer on Wells. Right. Um, well, then, then you're sleeping a little better at night. You've been on the board of Wells Fargo, yes. still on Disney. Disney, this period of expansion through Lucasfilm, Marvel, these acquisitions that they did that, that got them ownership of modern mythology. Uh, Wells Fargo, huge scandal on accounts and treatments of people's personal data. So, What's the pitch that these boards make for why John Chen needs to be on the board? What are they, what are they coming to you specifically to add? I think, I, I think um, I'm very privileged on both those, those boards. Uh, one has a little trouble right now, but it will overcome. And one is doing extremely well. And, and, and it, to me, uh, notice that you know, I, it's something that I don't know anything about. Uh, you know, the media business, I don't know anything about. And, 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 at least not at the time when I joined the board. <laughs> and, and the banking business, other than doing, uh, doing business with them, I actually don't know a lot about it either. It, I benefited tremendously. Well, why'd I, they ask you? Um, I, I think, you know, what I could bring is hopefully technology and maybe some element of global trades, and especially in Asia Pacific. And, you know, I, I guess that's it. Yeah. Favorite Disney movie? Up. Up. I love Up. <laughs> Jack, Dorsey, Jack Dorsey, also on the board, Ratatouille. He Ratatouille? Says, yeah. It's wonderful, too. <laughs> uh, but, but Up, I mean, the section, I had never seen anything better than the section that described the life in the beginning. I, you know, 
very sustained. I mean, that production is unbelievable. John Chen, CEO of BlackBerry, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. My thanks again to Anthony Bucci, Dan Rosenzweig, Nadia Shurabura, and of course, John Chen. I am John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the newsletter in the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube right now, see video of these conversations if you like, or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.